0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. And today we'll be talking with an author, Kachig Moradian, who is the author of The Resistance Network, The Armenian Genocide and Humanitarianism in Ottoman Syria, 1915 to 1918 published by Michigan State University Press in 2020. Welcome, Kachig. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me.
0: So I want to get uh, started just with an introduction of Kachig. Uh, He has a, a new position as of January 2021. He was just appointed Armenian and Georgian Area Specialist in the African and Middle Eastern Division Near East Section at the Library of Congress. He is a lecturer in Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African studies at Columbia University. And he has published articles on concentration camps, unarmed resistance, the aftermath of mass violence, midwifery in the Middle East, and approaches to teaching history. He is the co-editor of a forthcoming book on late Ottoman history and the editor of the peer-reviewed journal, The Armenian Review. Dr. Meridian has taught courses on imperialism, mass violence, urban space and conflict in the Middle East, the aftermaths of war and mass violence, and human rights. Uh, And he's taught these courses at Worcester State University and Clark University in Massachusetts, Rutgers University, Stockton University in New Jersey, and Cal State University, Fresno in California. So we're coming to you coast to coast today from Southern California. I'm in San Diego and Kachig is in New York. And it's a real pleasure to have you. Thanks again
1: for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Stephen.
0: Okay, so let's get let's get started with this book um, first. I love to ask all of the people uh, on my on my show here what motivated you. So, do you have a reason for for writing the
1: book? What what prompted you? So, uh, this is part of my. Uh, dissertation. It is an expanded uh, version of my PhD dissertation, which I wrote at Clark University. And uh, the particular, the specific topic that focuses on Syria and uh, what is referred to as the second phase of the Armenian genocide is one that was uh, both uh, inspired by you know the general environment in the Middle East at that point, as I was writing, uh, as I was conducting research uh, in my PhD program. This was a period when the civil war in Syria, in sometimes the very same uh, area, uh, cities like Raqqa and Deir ez-Zor were uh, on television every day, were in the news. This was a period when. Uh, uh, you know, much of uh, the turbulence in Syria was at its uh, at the you know in its in its earlier stage, and at the same time, in many ways, as I was working on mass violence and genocide, I realized the significance. I was working on the Armenian genocide and realized how uh, what is missing in the scholarship is uh, first the period and the region that I'm looking at. That, and although it is very much an important part of the history of the Armenian Genocide, the region I look at is where uh, the largest massacres took place, where the greatest number of survivors, uh, in fact, uh, connect have connections to. Still, it was the least studied in a historiography that is second, uh, in, in a case, in the study of the Armenian Genocide, which is the second best studied case of genocide after the Holocaust. So this is one central issue. On the one hand, what was going on on the ground in the here and now, and on the other, uh, uh, thinking about tackling this subject and this region that is so central for the history of the Armenian genocide, but for a variety of reasons, which we probably will be talking about, did not factor into uh, the scholarship.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I'm really interested in how you conceptualize the term resistance and then how you use social network theory in order to broaden it into humanitarianism and then focus on agency. Could you could you describe how you arrived at your method and, and how you developed it in the course of the book?
1: The central concern for me was to not tell the history of genocide by putting Uh, those who are referred to as the victims in a position of passivity. So Mm -hmm. oftentimes, and this is uh, in general uh, a a problem in genocide studies, uh, but in the particular case of the Armenian genocide, it's also even more of a challenge. Uh, The Armenian genocide is uh, framed in a way that uh, where the Armenians are being massacred by uh, you know Ottoman Turkish mm-hmm. uh, authorities and their policies on the one hand, and are being saved by Western humanitarianism on the other. So the Armenians are being subjected to uh, massacre and 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 uh, you know humanitarian efforts, and their agency uh, plays little role in what is going on. And this mm-hmm. is, of course, due to a number right. of reasons uh, you know, that have to do with access to archives, uh, you know, l- limitations that have to do with language, etc. So this was my starting point. So I, I wanted to uh, emphasize mm-hmm. the role, the voice of uh, the victim group. Now, the resistance uh, uh, mm-hmm. portion is also closely connected to this. Uh, as you know, much of the discussion about resistance during genocide, uh, for decades, there is this debate about you know do victims go to their deaths you know like sheep? Uh, what is resistance? What is uh, what you know? What constitutes resistance? What does not? And although this debate has been around for a very long time in the case of in the in Holocaust scholarship, and uh, there's much more clarity there today in that on that front. In the case of the Armenian Genocide and other cases, when we talk about resistance, it is typically defined narrowly as armed resistance. And uh, those are the cases that are the focus of the scholarship whenever, you know, if at all, that aspect is explored. Uh, so that's one issue. And uh, so my uh, attempt was to broaden uh, the aperture. And think about resistance as actions mm-hmm. committed against the will of the authorities in order to thwart essentially their efforts and uh, against the law with the purpose intention of saving Armenian lives.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I'm particularly interested in your sources and I, I want to come back to that because you, you do, I think a magnificent job combining all the a lot of different sources and things that, that people generally don't look at. But first, I'd like to ask if you could introduce for our listeners the structure of your book. I know that you have um, three parts. So how did you decide to arrange your chapters and, and what decisions did you make content-wise? What are they?
1: So the, the first decision I had to make was how to conceptualize what is happening in Ottoman Syria Beginning in uh, May 1915, until almost the end of the war of the First World War, uh, and uh, the way I do it is somehow uh, there's an I, I overlap the uh, bo- the temporal and spatial. So I look at the first months of the early arrival of Armenian deportees from across the Ottoman Empire, the Armenian genocide. Uh, begins in April one thousand nine hundred and fifteen with deportations of and massacres of Armenians across the Ottoman Empire, the first convoys of survivors start arriving in Ottoman Syria around in, in the first uh, weeks of may one thousand nine hundred and fifteen so I start with Aleppo because mm-hmm. Aleppo is a hub. This is where uh, you know the bulk the largest number of survivors are arriving beginning in may and the numbers become uh, much higher by summer, by the summer of 1915. And then there, is, there are a series of decisions that the Ottoman central authorities are making, uh, which is shutting down uh, the city of Aleppo and pushing the Armenians out of this, out of the city into a network of concentration camps mm-hmm. along the lower bend of the Euphrates River all the way to Raqqa and Derzor. Again, these are names that are quite familiar to many of us uh, in light of the civil war in Syria. Now, so what uh, the the first half of the book focuses on the urban dimension. It is very much about uh, genocide and resistance in the urban environment of Aleppo. Uh, Aleppo has always been seen in the scholarship as a hub of the deportation and and as such, I conceive it also as a central location of resistance to deportation, unarmed resistance to deportation. And then in the second part, uh, the, the focus moves to uh, more desert areas and along the Euphrates concentration mm-hmm. camps where most of the Armenian deportees are uh, interned. And in the third part, I look at the destruction of close to two hundred thousand Armenians, their massacre, mostly women and children, in Derzor, in uh, you know after many of these concentration camps are emptied and the surviving population is pushed towards the region of Derzor. Uh, this happens in the summer of nineteen sixteen. So the framework is one where, on the mm-hmm. one hand, so I uh, you know in terms of. Uh, Temporally, I'm looking at, uh, you know, beginning from May 1915 into the fall yeah, of 1915 yeah, yeah. in Aleppo and then into the desert.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I can definitely see that. So, I, I mean, I, I, from Aleppo, uh, how many Armenians were there in Aleppo? Is it about 10,000 or so? Is that right? And then my, my question would be from your sources, how did you... Discover or rediscover their agency. How they began to mobilize and, and assist in humanitarian work. Could you could you give us an idea of, of what was going on based on the sources that you looked looked at?
1: Yes. So initially, uh, there there was a community of around ten thousand Armenians in the city of Aleppo. Uh, th- these are uh, this community was by and large. Not deported, particularly in these early months, so they did have the ability. As uh, deportees from across the Ottoman Empire are arriving in the region, uh, sometimes in horrendous conditions, oftentimes having lost the male uh, population of, of of their town, uh, this this local community mobilizes. Uh, a, a large effort, humanitarian effort, almost as soon as the first deportees arrive in the region, to help them. This mobilization is is, is critical, and it will eventually morph into a resistance. Uh, and I'll say a, a little bit about that mm-hmm. uh, uh, a bit later. But so what happens sure, at this point? Please. The sources I use. The sources I use are largely. Uh, uh, the, the new sources I use are largely uh, Armenian language sources. They are, for example, uh, the minutes of one of the main committees providing relief uh, for, for these Armenians who are arriving. They met on a daily basis, and we have the records, their minutes. Uh, the ledgers of this committee, this council, that maintained detailed records of every single purchase Every single egg, every single piece Mm -hmm. of wood, every little bribe that was paid to gendarmes, everything is listed for the entire duration of the war, as well as some of the lists of deportees they provided. I add to this uh, uh, hundreds of memoirs and accounts by survivors. And uh, I, I introduce all of this into the scholarship where there is already tremendous work that has been done. On the Ottoman archives, on German archives, and I try to triangulate as I uh, tell this story. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and I I see a lot of um, spatial thinking and and geography, and and I wonder if you could expand on that because uh, you have not just the cities, as you say, but there's a dynamic here between the urban and rural environment. how did how did you do that both conceptually and with your sources? how did you begin to let's say map the map the stories differently and, and give us a
1: history from below Yes, it was uh, very uh, clear that uh, both the process the way in which the genocide was uh, uh, essentially unfurled, was occurring on the ground in the province of Aleppo and the city at, at its core uh, was not just one that where you had orders coming from the center, from from Istanbul, uh, from the central authorities and the local authorities were just implementing it. Genocide does not progress, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with the same degree at the, in a, in the you know at, uh, across an entire empire, there are local variations, of course. And what is happening in the case of Aleppo uh, made it very clear to me that uh, the, the violence is not just uh, in uh, happening in the region, but it but is also oftentimes of the region. And even more so, the organized effort to save Armenians this humanitarian resistance was also one that was very much a product of the urban environment. And I demonstrate that by looking into the hotel, uh, a a very well-known hotel, Hotel Baron, one of the best-known hotels in the region at that point, a hospital in the area, the general uh, environment of Aleppo at that point of the city and the way in which it lent itself to, uh, on the one hand, uh, the imp- implementing the destruction of the Armenian population and on the other devising ways of saving Armenians. So in, in the book, especially in the first half mm-hmm. of the book, I uh, start with what I refer to as humanitarian efforts. Uh, you know, these committees that are formed on the ground by local Aleppo Armenians to help the arriving survivors. And then what happens is that the central authorities start cracking down on these efforts. And many of these committees go underground and continue their work helping survivors in a clandestine way. And in that context, you have many survivors arriving in the region who are also joining this effort and participating in the struggle to save as many people as possible.
0: Yeah, and and I want I definitely want to move to to the um, the story of the camps. I mean, both concentration camps and and transit camps and the categorization and classification they're in. But I had one more question for you. Could could you describe how you reread the late nineteen fifteen liquidation of the camps? I, I find this a very interesting section uh, in chapter three of your book, where you're talking about the distinct phases and, and looking at wartime internment. So uh, how, what are your sources let's say show that that might be that might be new to that story of the liquidation of the camps in
1: 1915. So the, the I place the history of concentration camps during the Armenian genocide and my book is the mo, uh, you know the uh, the, uh, the most recent and in fact uh, you know uh, the most expanded uh, work on Uh, on this very little studied uh, aspect of uh, civilian internment, I place it within a broader uh, Mm -hmm. context of uh, the development of concentration camps in the late 19th and the early 20th centuries, beginning with uh, you know, the, the Spanish in Cuba and, uh, you know, the United States in the Philippines, yes, the British yes. in South Africa. So these are the colonial cases where the concentration camp was used as a counter insurgency uh, method weapon alongside policies of scorch earth uh, tactics in order to isolate and neutralize insurgents and separate uh, their support base, the civilian population. What happens in the early 20th century is in German Southwest Africa, uh, the Germans uh, you know, take this already deadly for civilians uh, you know, approach and implement it uh, during the Herero genocide, in fact, on the very survivors right, of right. the initial, initial round. So this becomes a more deadly strain. And I, my argument in the book is that uh, this deadly strain that emerges of, of concentration camps a genocidal string that emerges in German Southwest Africa, then uh, is also implemented in the case of the Armenian genocide. The Ottoman authorities uh, establish a network of camps across the Euf- uh, around Aleppo the and then ac- along the Euphrates all the way into Derazor, all in modern-day Syria, and. They push the population there so that, uh, you know, in order to isolate them, in order for, you know, epidemics play a role here, uh, in order to isolate them and to make sure that they die alone. And uh, ultimately, uh, these camps uh, also become places where this resistance network continues to work and, and, and continues to its effort to help people. Ultimately, these camps are liquidated uh, in... Uh, 1916. Beginning in uh, in the spring of 1916, uh, the camps are shut down, and whoever survives is pushed further south and southeast along the Euphrates, for uh, and then to be massacred mm-hmm. in 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 a, in a region uh, in the region of uh, uh So this is the, so so this is how I conceptualize it. I first place it yeah. in the context of the evolution of camps. And then I, I zoom in and demonstrate how this is playing a critical yeah, yeah. component uh, role here.
0: Right. I, I And I think, um, Kachi, that's it's such an interesting idea because you you actually read it forward from the 19th century, if, if I may say so, and the globalization of the internment phenomenon. And, you know, the work of Rimen Kavorkian I think is so important here in his history, but the way that you develop it beyond a, a kind of like encyclopedic catalog in, in much, much greater depth, making comparisons that, that take us out of the, the third Reich and the Nazi period. Um, I wonder if I could ask you now, sort of like moving into, into the second big part of the book. Um, you have a chapter called gateways to the desert. So, uh, what were these camps, Sibyl, Karklick, and Bob? And, and again, how are you reading the story of the resistance network with your sources?
1: So what happens in the, uh, so as deportees are arriving in Aleppo, uh, initially in a few hundreds, and then uh, in the thousands and tens of thousands by uh, the summer of 1915, uh, the local authorities are, uh, you know, are are taking a number of measures on the ground to, uh, to figure out what to do with them. At this point... The central authorities are not really sending much instructions. The focus of uh, the, the Young Turk leadership is the uh, deportation and the annihilation of the Armenian population in the Ottoman heartland. So they're paying little attention to the survivors who are mm. trickling into Syria. So. At this point, the local Ottoman authorities, some of them, the, for example, the governor of Aleppo, who was friendly to Armenians, uh, they are trying to help within uh, their means uh, in, or, in order to ameliorate the situation of yeah. these uh, people. So, uh, so this, uh, during this period, there are many uh, camps that are created around the city of Aleppo, where uh, thousands of arriving deportees are placed. The idea is to keep these camps temporary. The idea, the impression, both among the local authorities and the Armenian population is that these people are going to be settled somewhere. No one at this point, uh, you know, on the ground, particularly the Armenians, have any realization that the only place they're going to be allowed to settle in large numbers is going to be under the sands of the desert. It is... uh, so this is this everything is seems temporary and the resistance network oh. uh, initially starts its efforts uh, let me uh, open a parenthesis here and say a few words about uh, humanitarian relief and the scholarship in general so uh, humanitarianism sure, during the Armenian genocide humanitarianism during the Armenian genocide is uh, uh, is is very well studied and it focuses on the assistance by Uh, The United States, millions of dollars, the equivalent of a couple billion dollars in today's money, was raised in the United States during and in the aftermath of the Armenian genocide for relief purposes. So much of the scholarship focuses on how these funds were collected, how they were sent to the the U.S. ambassador in the Ottoman Empire and uh, to consuls, and, and this huge effort during the genocide and in its aftermath to assist the Armenians. What is missing here is how during the genocide, between 1915 and 1918, these efforts uh, were, uh, it it, look, it just looks like, you know, there's this, uh, you know, there, there are these millions of dollars that are pouring into the Ottoman Empire, and they're just being distributed to Armenians, while Armenians. What's happening is Mm -hmm. that the central authorities are clearly hindering these efforts. And it is the Armenian clandestine groups who are playing a very dangerous and critical role in making these funds and resources accessible to deportees uh, scattered around the desert as well as in urban areas, right? And so what I do is, what what my work does Mm -hmm. is, Uh, demonstrates how this network is very much uh, uh, led and moved by people on the ground, locals, primarily Armenians, but also others, Muslims, Jews, and others, and is not just something that is happening to the victims in terms of assistance coming from the West. So there's this integral connection between... Mm -hmm. Yeah, missionaries, consuls, that. and the people on the ground—that is very important for me. And, uh, yeah. and as such, but, this is an effort. But, that, that no, extends... it's and it's. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, uh, this is an effort that extends, you know, not just radiates from out of Aleppo, but extends into the entire region.
0: Yeah, and and just as a follow up to that, it, it's interesting to me how you reread. People like Morgenthau, who's in Istanbul, right, is the U.S. ambassador or Jesse B. Jackson um, and all of the relief organizations. I mean, they're not just Armenian organizations, but Armenian and Syrian relief organizations, which which run into a whole mess of problems with um, with Ottoman diplomats. Right. So are you are you looking at this i would imagine not just from a diplomatic perspective but but also from the sort of social perspective correct me if correct me if i'm wrong with that
1: Yes, absolutely, and what I do is I try to uh link uh the already established scholarship of tremendous humanitarian assistance being sent in the direction of Uh, the Ottoman Empire. And then the way in which you have uh, people on the ground, uh, Armenian uh, community leaders, uh, members of committees, who are clandestinely, uh, you know, getting funds from the, for example, the United States consul in Aleppo, Jesse B. Jackson, and distributing these funds, uh, again, secretly, sometimes uh, at night time, Going into these concentration camps, risking their lives, many of these couriers will die, many of them will be arrested, others will get killed. So this is an effort where uh, that right. humanitarianism uh, flows into sometimes the darkest corners of World War One, the, the 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 heart of uh, you know mass uh, extermination and destruction, and and these individuals whose stories have not been told. Uh, The reason, uh, if you allow me here, for this particular uh, oversight in the history, in the historiography of the Armenian Genocide, is that uh, much of the scholarship in the past uh, several decades, beginning in the 80s, very much operated in an environment of, first of all, the Turkish state's policy, official policy of denial. So many scholars... uh, you know, essentially were writing in a way that tried to counter that policy of denial, and and that played a crucial role. On the other hand, many scholars wanted to introduce to uh, audiences in the West, for example, mainly in the United States, reintroduce the history of the Armenian Genocide and the huge role that Americans, you know, played in terms of collecting assistance and, and prov- right. providing assistance, part of American history, which, is, which was something very well known in the 1920s. Everybody was part of this, but it was forgotten as a scholarship demonstrates. And then, so, so this, is, this is key. And then, uh, so this kind of framework uh, tries to integrate the role of the Armenians on the ground in this, in this effort uh, and, and in that sense, it, is, uh, you know, it, it adds to the scholarship from that perspective as well. It is important to note here that uh, three of my advisors, uh, you mentioned Raymond, Raymond Kevorkian earlier, he was one of my dissertation uh, committee members, Taner Akçam, who is a, a, a Turkish scholar, the first Turkish yes, scholar to publish great. on the Armenian Genocide, and Holocaust scholar, the Borod Work, have played a huge role in my, both in my intellectual. Journey, and also in my thinking about many of these issues. So I stand uh, uh, first and foremost. I, I my work stands on the shoulders of hundreds of thousands of uh, these survivors who eventually will also become victims, but they have uh, they leave behind some records, and uh, and thousands of survivors who write their memoirs, but also on on the work of these great scholars who allowed. Uh, me to really, uh, uh, you know, do this reconstruction, building on their work.
0: Mm-hmm. And and you mentioned Tanner uh work, and and maybe we can put Ronald Suni in this as well with his uh, 2015 book. I'm yes. very curious in in how you read this historiographically to to get out of this you know, extreme intentionalism, as you call it at one point, right? Um, do you see prospects then for people to rethink the history of Der Zor both before and after through Ottoman and Armenian sources? And especially as Ottoman sources become more available, hopefully, or I, I don't know. I mean, this is sort of a historiographical question when you're thinking about the, the continued denialism.
1: Yes. Uh- I, when I refer to extreme intentionalism, I, I refer to the early scholarship uh, on the Armenian genocide that largely mirrored uh, the intentionalist model of the Holocaust. Uh, in face of a state-sponsored policy of denial, uh, you know, almost constructing a model that's very similar to the intentionalist model of the Holocaust. Uh, and, you know, it was, was a way in which it was easy to uh, demonstrate against a policy that says there was no genocide, that this was indeed genocide. But ultimately, uh, genocide studies have evolved over the past couple of decades. And uh, also Armin's, uh genocide studies has evolved. And in many ways, part of the reason I argue that this region Ottoman Syria during the Armenian Genocide was not tackled even by the pioneers of the Armenian Genocide, who will sometimes just say a few paragraphs about it only. Because it is complicated, because it is messy, and it does not fit this kind of intentionalist model. What is happening in Ottoman Syria defies that model, because on the one hand, uh, it's not, uh, you know, there is a period beginning in uh, late 1915 and early 19- in the first few months of 1916, where the massacres have stopped. Hundreds of thousands of Armenians have been massacred right. across the Ottoman Empire. Hundreds of thousands of others are languishing in concentration camps or in hiding in urban areas across Ottoman Syria and elsewhere. And it seems like it's over. It seems like this uh, Ottoman state's policy of uh, uh, uprooting and dispossessing uh, the Ottoman Armenian population, and and also, uh, of course, it's important to note here, many uh, Greeks and Assyrians uh, has, has come to a halt. But then something else happens, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't seem like, you know, the Ottoman authorities are hell-bent on going after every single Armenian everywhere. Their central... Uh, uh, purpose and objective is to destroy Armenian community life, is to destroy Armenian organized existence on, the, on these lands. And what happens in Syria, therefore, this period where for several months, Armenians are even trying to, uh, in certain areas, almost uh, getting back on their feet and organizing and forming communities in towns like Raqqa or Derzor, There's a second onslaught that comes beginning in March, but particularly in the summer of 1916 where a second round of decisions are made. Uh, Again, the decisions are made earlier in 1916 and they're implemented uh, through summer of 1916 where these camps are shut down and the population, the surviving population, largely women and children, are massacred. So... It's a, it's a situation mm-hmm. where really yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. reconstruction is messy and it doesn't really fit in this way of, you know, the, the short one sentence narrative of the Armenian genocide, which is that the Ottoman uh, authorities deported and massacred the Armenians because they did not want to leave one Armenian uh, alive. Uh, you know, that kind of yeah. simple, simplistic narrative, which has been complicated in recent years, of course, by the scholarship.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and in the scholarship, because you, in your book, discuss women and children and, and orphans um, a, a lot, and I'm thinking about, you know, the contribution of Deborah Dwork here, right? So um, is there a particular story or stories? Kachiga, this is a hard question, perhaps, but is there a centerpiece to your book? W- would there be one story Either a, a story of women and children, or does it have to be a, a political elite like Talat? Right? What would you say is is the centerpiece for your resistance network? I, I'm I'm actually kind of like asking for names here. If there's if there's one tale or one story that that struck you?
1: Yes. So uh, w- w- there are many women in this story, and the way in which their role uh, and in, in the the gendered approach to this is that. Uh, I, when I start in Aleppo, where there is an organized community and uh, organized around churches largely, so the Armenian Apostolic Church, Armenian Catholic Church, and Armenian uh, uh, Protestant Church uh, are organizing the initial relief efforts. This is a male-dominated effort, right? Uh, all the leading, all the committee members, mm, yes, are, are men, right? Uh, Women uh, are only playing an auxiliary role within this, you know, organized relief structure. But as I demonstrate in the book, there's at the same time many women who are playing a critical role and are only loosely connected to this network. That's one. And I also show how the farther away we go from the heartland, from the center, from Aleppo, where this effort is radiating from, you have more and more women as this network becomes loosely connected Playing a critical role in the effort to save Armenians. So I, 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 document, I document the stories of a number of women in this regard. But uh, perhaps uh, telling one story could be could illustrate uh, the, some of the complexities of this narrative. Uh, one such person is a woman by the name of Elmas Santurian. Uh, and if you allow me to take just one minute to tell her story in a nutshell. Yes,
0: uh, that's what I'm asking for.
1: <laughs> please, yes. I, I think uh, our, lis- our listeners would, would really like that. Go ahead, please. So, uh, in in her case, she is a massacre widow. Her husband is killed during an earlier round of massacres in 1909. After which she uh, she is she receives support from an army women's organization uh, and is taken from her town Marash into Constantinople to study nursing and midwifery and after that she she graduates in 1914 and the war erupts by the time she's back home uh, soon after the deportations of the Armenian population begin and she's forced to Aleppo she contracts typhus along the way gets sick is on her deathbed and an Armenian doctor who was part of the resistance network saves her life now you have a nurse who is trained as a nurse who, is also, who also has immunity while typhus is ravaging uh, the entire region uh, and particularly uh, the camps, the Armenian population. And she becomes an important uh, critical player because she is hired essentially by uh, a local... Uh, so the, the head of one of the military hospitals in Aleppo, Ottoman military hospitals in Aleppo, whose daughter's life she saves as a nurse. Uh, She had typhus too, the daughter had typhus. The the, the man hires her to be the head nurse at the military hospital. And this woman single-handedly helped save the lives of dozens of army women by securing passes for them and permits for them and hiring them to work in the hospital thus anchoring them in the city while the Ottoman authorities are systematically emptying the city of Armenian deportees. So this is one example of such an effort. There's Mm -hmm. another woman, who is working very closely with uh, uh, a Swiss teacher, uh, Beatrice Rohner, who is very well known in the scholarship on the Armenian genocide for her assistance and role. And this woman, Araksia is based in Derzor and is constantly sending reports to Beatrice Rohner, who in turn is, uh, you know, passing these reports to consuls. These reports are ending up in newspapers across the globe, including the United States. So, and ultimately, in the summer of 1916, Araksia is arrested uh, and killed right before the Derzor massacres. Again, these are just two examples the book is full of uh, examples of mm-hmm. men, women, and children yeah. who took part in this resistance effort.
0: Right, right, and and you talk a lot about these informal networks and and the violence within and the supply lines. So, I mean, what would you imagine from your work? And and of course, you know, you're, you're the editor of, of the Armenian Review. What, what sort of things could you imagine seeing in, in further empirical research and then in the historiography of, of genocide and Holocaust studies? Uh,
1: uh, thank you for the question, Stephen. You know, the uh, in recent years, there are some very interesting uh, uh, work that's being done in Turkey itself. There's a young generation of Turkish scholars who are... Uh, uh, not only just, you know, but we are past, uh, you know, the just scholars challenging the denialist narrative, and there is, at this point, uh, a vast scholarship that is really moving on into some of these less-known aspects and, and and trying to shed light and think about mass violence by using the Armenian Genocide as a case study. Uh, there are many local uh, and regional studies that are being published. Uh, scholars like uh, Ümit Kürt, who uh, are, scholars who have been uh, uh, done work both in Turkey, in the Ottoman archives and elsewhere, have have really uh, have helped shape our thinking about uh, a lot of uh, these local histories and and their implications for uh, for our thinking about mass violence. So in that sense, that is a very uh, exciting uh, development. Uh, on the other hand. Uh, you know, uh, between the scholarship, the new scholarship, uh, thinking about the Holocaust and thinking about colonial cases of genocide and genocide in the 20th century, I think we have uh, the theoretical tools that we have uh, have, are, have become more complex and more nuanced. Uh, there's more connections, for example. In, in my work, I take from a little bit from network theory, but also a lot from urban studies. I, I, I borrow a lot from... Uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the theoretical frameworks and approaches in Holocaust studies. As I think about much of this, so there's this dynamic young generation of scholars in mm-hmm. Turkey and beyond that are uh, really bringing fresh perspective into uh, into the fore.
0: And, and really, I think my, my last question, before we sort of move on to your current projects and, and things that you might recommend or books rec- you might recommend, um, you have in chapter eight a conclusion. And I think the conclusion is, is very interestingly titled, Surviving Talat, the Network's Legacy. So there's a two-part question that I have to ask. So you know, first, for our listeners, who was Talat and, and how does the Armenian community survive him? And then what is the network's legacy within the Armenian diaspora? So this is kind of an Armenian-centric question, um, but I'd like to hear your, your input on it and, and, how you, and how you would reason this um, in the concluding points to your book.
1: Thank you. So uh, Talat Pasha was the Minister of Interior and uh, main, considered to be the, the main architect of the Armenian genocide. Uh, he is uh, known to have told diplomats, consuls, others, that he is essentially solving the Armenian question by uh, getting rid of the Armenians. And in that sense, uh, I titled the last chapter Surviving Talat because it is very much about how uh, both during the Armenian genocide and in the rebuilding process, in the aftermath of the Armenian genocide, uh, the Armenian, uh, this organized network of Armenians and, and, and many others who are part of this pushing back against these genocidal policies are actually also laying the groundwork for the survival and revival that is going to come uh, after Ottoman defeat in World War I and Ottoman withdrawal from Syria. And so in that sense, I see this uh, period that I say a little about in my final chapter as, this, uh, as, a, as, a, as a period where the very people sometimes who survived, who were engaged in this resistance effort, humanitarian resistance effort, and managed to survive, were not arrested, killed, uh, become uh, some of the people who are playing an integral part, in the rebuilding of the Armenian community, now cast out of their ancestral homes, now in places like Syria, Lebanon, mm-hmm. France, and North America and elsewhere. So in many ways, I, I try to show how, for example, in one example, I talk about uh, this young man who was a courier for the U.S. consul in Aleppo passing, uh, you know, funds, transferring funds to uh, a, a Reverend Eskigian and, and several others uh, in order to help the deportees. Uh, Reverend Eskigian dies of typhus. He contracts from uh, the, the very deportees he was helping. He was an important member of the network. But, 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 but this young man, uh, John Minasian, uh, survives the war. And uh, I, I, I complete, conclude the book with a scene where he goes and visits the gravesite of Reverend Eskidjian, who did not survive. And uh, and he's accompanied by uh, the Swiss teacher that I mentioned earlier and the wife of the Reverend Eskidjian, in a way uh, trying to show how this was a collaborative effort between Westerners, locals, children, mm-hmm. others. And, and then sails to the United States. The rest of the story of, uh, of, of this young man and his service to rebuilding the Armenian communities continues in the United States. The same applies to several others who stay in Aleppo or end up in Beirut and help rebuild these communities. Hmm.
0: Well, thank you for that. Uh, and could you please recommend for for our listeners here at New Books Network some other works? And these could be monographs or, or they could be larger works of synthesis or in historiography. Uh, I, I'm very curious because uh, as a scholar, too, of, of um, camps and ghettos and especially concentration camps and transit camps uh, in, in my work for U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, I'm, I'm curious to see uh, in your conclusion if, if you perhaps could could uh, drop a few names uh, and, and give our listeners some other things that they might be able to read.
1: Uh, thank you. So uh, some of the monumental works on, on the Armenian genocide are authored by historians such as Taner Akcham, Raymond Kevorkian. Uh, we just mentioned Talat Pasha. There's, a, there's an excellent biography of Talat Pasha uh, uh, by uh, uh, scholar hans Lukas Kieser that just came out in, a couple of years ago. Uh, from the younger generation of scholars, there are scholars such as Ümit Kurt, whose, uh, whose book on the Armenians of Aintab, uh, uh essentially a study of uh, the, the the genocide and the economics of of the process in the province of Ani in the Ottoman Empire uh, is is forthcoming in a few months. So that, as far as the Armenian genocide is concerned, there are some really interesting works in recent years that uh, uh, urge us to rethink. Uh, what a concentration, the history of concentration camps, you know, typically when many of us think about concentration camps, yeah. we think about Auschwitz and, uh, just a couple of days ago was the mm-hmm. 76th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. But in many ways, books such as, uh, one long night, uh, books such as, uh, that, or, mm-hmm. uh, collections of articles, yes. uh, uh, that uh, about World War One, civilian internment during World War One, really uh, allow us to have uh, perspective on the way in which this deadly weapon, uh, this uh, of the, the weapon of civilian internment, forced civilian internment, uh, has changed and evolved over over decades from the late nineteenth century into our days.
0: And could you? Uh... Maybe say a few words about your current projects. I I know uh, we talked at the beginning about your new position at the Library of Congress. Maybe uh, you could uh, tell us a little bit about that and what you are working on currently with your research and projects or or might be interested in uh, in the near future.
1: Uh, I'm just starting uh, my uh, responsibility as the area specialist, Armenian and Georgian area specialist at the Library of Congress. Uh, There's a huge collection of Armenian and Georgian material, uh, uh, and uh, I look forward to working with scholars and others, librarians and others, both in terms of expanding these collections and also making them available, accessible to researchers and and the general public. My uh, next research uh, book project, which is, uh, I'm halfway there, uh, uh, focuses on the... Notebooks of two midwives, uh, Armenian midwives from the Ottoman town of Eintab, who uh, uh, kept ledgers of every single childbirth they officiated. We're talking around uh, six to seven thousand children wow. <laughs> uh, from from the city of How Eintab. Wow. Uh, from the city of Eintab. and then in the 1920s, when they're forced out of Turkey, they arrive in Aleppo and they continue their work in the city of Aleppo. So, so this is their story, and through them it is a story of the, uh, uh, essentially the, the birth of the modern Middle East. Uh, right. Their ledgers right. provide details mm-hmm. about uh, you know, you know, Arabs, Muslims, Turks, Jews, uh, Mormons, Ab- Armenians, Christians, all, all these different groups, uh, religious, ethnic, uh, through this, uh, mm-hmm. you know, essentially, and details about these births, uh, these families, uh, different customs and traditions, and uh, they are—it uh, is the kind of archival work that I love best. These are the archives that are on the margins. Yeah. These are yeah, the yeah. documents that are in the drawers of uh, families that sometimes are forgotten or are gathering dust. And uh, in this case, uh, these two ledgers have been have traversed the world, in fact, and arrived in New Jersey, where a family member. Share them with me, so I look forward to sharing the story wow. of these two midwives with the uh, with the world. That, that's
0: that's, fanta- that's fantastic. That's th- fantastic. those are things I love reading, and I, I hope um, get translated too. Or is it all in Armenian, or, or some of those memoirs uh,
1: in other languages? So the the documents, their notebooks, are in armeno Turkish. They are in Armenian letters, but Turkish. Uh, uh, language. And, uh, we have, uh, we already have prepared, uh, and completed a transcript of all of this, uh, because there's a lot of names. It's uh, systematically gone through that. Uh, and, uh, yes. So, uh, there, hopefully also the, the full two ledgers of, so each midwife, uh, had, yeah. uh, her own ledger. One starts, uh, working as a midwife in 1888, And until she dies, the other starts in uh, 1905. uh, And then again, her entire life, decades over decades, is dedicated to this. Uh, I'm I'm very much hoping to share Mm -hmm. these ledgers and the transcripts as well, uh, you know, uh, and make them available online. Well, thank you.
0: Uh, So uh, I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and we've been speaking with Dr. Dr. Kaczek-Moradian here. He is the author of a new book called The Resistance Network, The Armenian Genocide and Humanitarianism in Ottoman Syria, 1915-1918. to 1918. This book is published in 2020 by Michigan State University Press. Thank you, um, Kaceg for the conversation today and for joining us here on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having
1: me, Stephen.